Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Just how worried should we be about the future of American democracy? I'm Zach Beecham, and I write for Vox about democracy, liberalism, and the political right. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. This uncertainty about what's in store for the future of U.S. democracy is the question at the heart of our Vox Conversations two-part special. Recently, I published a feature called How Does This End? on the long-term prognosis of America's political system that kicked up quite a bit of conversation. In the piece, I argued that the American democratic system was breaking down, creating greater risks for violence and a slide out of democracy altogether. And the worst part is that all the best ideas for fixing things seem unlikely to happen at best. So the future for democracy is not looking bright in the United States. In this two-part special, I wanted to spotlight two voices in the discussion who have unique and interesting thoughts on the key issues at stake. This week, for part one, I'm talking with New York Times columnist Ross Douthat. In a recent column, Ross took issue with my piece's suggestion that America could see significant political violence in the coming years. We ended up finding a lot more common ground in our conversation on this particular issue than maybe you might have expected coming in. But we disagreed pretty starkly over just how much of a threat the Republican Party poses to democracy. I hope you enjoy listening to us argue as much as we enjoyed arguing, which is to say, a lot. Ross, welcome to Vox Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Let's maybe start with this recent column, right? Because, uh, There is this talk swirling, and it's mostly been prompted by two books, predicting a reasonable likelihood of civil war in the United States. Now, I think civil war is overstating the claims, but I think that at least in one of these books, How Civil Wars Start by Barbara Walter, who's a leading scholar of civil conflict and and civil violence, it really does pinpoint a lot of ways in which you could see an escalation of violent behavior in the United States. And I think that's a real thing to be concerned about. I don't know if you think it's not something to be concerned about exactly, but perhaps maybe it's overstated. Yeah. Where do you think this literature is going? I mean, I'll I'll start, as I usually do in these conversations, by saying that my position is not that the United States is in terrific shape and that, you know, everything is wonderful and there's nothing to be concerned about. I think the United States is in rough shape and that a, a lot of the concerns that undergird 
the anxiety about a crisis of democracy or a looming civil war are valid concerns. But one, I do think there's sort of a tendency in the world for which I write, which is, you know, the world of mostly liberal New York Times readers and includes some of Vox's, I would say, mostly liberal audience. There's a tendency to leap from things are bad in various ways to everything's going to collapse any day now. The next election will be the last free election in American history. You know, I mean, I see this stuff on my Twitter feed a fair amount from a variety of people, and I hear versions of it from people who I know in real life. So I think it's useful to push back against that a little bit, because I think that it, you know, anything is possible in history. But I do think there's a sort of overstatement of the scale and nature of the risks that we face. So that's sort of my preface. And we can start with the Civil War stuff, because my guess is that it's a place where I'm more likely to get you to at least half agree with me than some of the other crisis of democracy stuff, right? But so the idea that America is headed for a civil war, right? So there's two issues here, right? So first, if you say America is headed to a civil war to a normal person who is not deeply fluent in political science literature and, you know, definitions of what counts as an armed conflict and so on, this evokes our own American Civil War, which was a rather serious sectional conflict in which hundreds of thousands of people died. It evokes the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. It evokes the Syrian Civil War and so on, down a list of really serious armed conflicts in which lots and lots of people have died. And I don't think that that seems terribly likely in the United States as it currently exists for a variety of reasons. We are very polarized, but our polarization isn't really sectional at all in the way, you know, it divides within states and regions that are sort of urban and rural, urban versus rural divides. But there's nothing like the Mason-Dixon line. There's nothing even like the sub-republics of the former Yugoslavia where you could sort of see a really natural and obvious fragmentation. I live in very liberal New Haven, Connecticut, and I can get to Trump country by driving 25 minutes to my north into farm towns. And I find it very difficult to imagine a scenario where the good people of New Haven are going to go to war with the good people of Durham, Connecticut. That does not seem terribly plausible. So there's that absence of sort of clear sectional, those kind of big divides. There's a monopoly on force issue, right, which is that the United States military shows no clear interest in either splitting or fragmenting internally or in becoming a political actor in its own right. The U.S. military, whatever its flaws and problems, the leadership of the military has zero interest, as far as I can tell, in exercising real power in the United States. And to the extent that it has any interest, and we can get into this later, but it sees itself as sort of safeguarding democracy. You saw this vibe very strongly from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the crazy months after Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump, right? So you don't have a a military that's either likely to break into warring factions or likely to sort of act as some kind of occupying force in a sectional conflict. And then I just don't think there are that many Americans who want to fight each other. And this is sort of, in some ways, an unprovable point, because obviously, like, if you suddenly accelerated 
into civil war, you know, maybe lots and lots of people who right now just fight each other on Twitter, you know, would take the guns that they have. We are a very heavily armed society and go to war with one another. But when I look at the unrest that we've had, and it's been real unrest relative to 10 or 15 years ago, in the last year or so, it is these very small groups of people who seem actually up for violence. It's, you know, 500 guys and ladies in Antifa. It's, you know, a couple thousand people associated with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, maybe. I'm not even sure how many of those people really want violence. But, you know, there are some people who want to fight. But this does not resemble at all, let's say, the situation in, like, 1930s Germany, when you had huge numbers of demobilized soldiers who had sort of formed themselves into paramilitaries and were fighting in the street, right? Like, Americans seem really comfortable fighting each other on cable news and in virtual reality and don't seem that excited about organizing themselves into rival militias and going to war with each other. So, anyway, that's a very long way of expressing doubts about various structural factors that could create a civil war. And then what I see in the literature, right, is that not all, but some of the people advancing these arguments are smart people and can see that we probably aren't going to have a 1861-style conflict. So then you get this move to say, well, by civil war, I just mean sort of a low level of quasi-insurrectionist violence, terrorism, you know, people fighting each other, sort of an amped up version of what you saw in 2020 and on January 6th. And I mean, I guess to me, that definition just seems like it's not a civil war, right? By that definition, America has had like 15 different civil wars in the course of our history. Certainly the 60s and 70s were a civil war. The 1920s were arguably a civil war. Various periods in the 19th century. The U.S. is this huge country, 330 million people right now. And at any given time, you are going to get some acts of violence. And in periods of disarray and dislocation, you'll get more of them. And we should be worried about that. But framing it as, here I am, an expert on Iraq, and I'm going to tell you why America is going to look like Iraq, seems to me like just unduly alarmist for what is actually being described. Like a 20% increase in white supremacist violence in 2023 would be very bad and would not be a civil war. It just wouldn't. So there's a lot in there that you are right that I do agree with. Like, I do think that there is a vanishingly small likelihood of anything like what we would conventionally understand a civil war to to be. I do think that that owes to some of the structural factors that you pointed to, and as well as one that you didn't mention, which is that the coercive power of the U.S. intelligence and security apparatus is tremendous as compared to what we've seen in cases where states have collapsed into civil war. So a lot of the concern is about, you know, a terrorist group successfully launching a series of attacks in the United States that would then create a spiral of fear and insecurity that picks up on people's underlying sense of mistrust with each other and then causes them to pick up arms. I think that's less likely because it's just very, very, very difficult for any kind of terrorist group, given the surveillance tools available to the FBI and the police after 9-11, for anyone to be able to launch this kind of coordinated terrorist attack. Not impossible, just 
unlikely. You need to go yeah. off the internet, basically, to do it. I mean, you need you need to drop out and communicate by snail mail and passenger pigeon again, I would say. Yeah, and then you have to deal with human informants, which the FBI has proven itself to be quite adept at getting into uh, white nationalist organizations in a lot of cases. So, like, it is not an easy task to try to foment that kind of mass scale violence. And there's a reason why white nationalists who have been trying to do it for a long time have not succeeded. However, and like, I think there are a number of important caveats here. Like, first, when people issue these warnings about civil wars, often what they are doing are pointing to other structural conditions in the United States that raise the likelihood of mass violence. So take Walter's book, right? There are a few structural factors that she identifies based on research on past conflicts, like a privileged group previously losing status, the health of a democratic institutions in a country declining, all of these for reasons that I think are, are very well-founded in the political science literature raise the risk of people wanting to take solutions to political disputes into their own hands. They don't trust the government to be able to resolve it. They don't believe the government is legitimate. Members of a powerful group think that it is incumbent on them to defend their own status using force if the state won't do it for them. All of that seems to me to be true. And as you rightly pointed out, we've had periods of intense civil violence in the past, which don't meet the, like, 1861 definition of civil war, but have had tremendous impact on our politics, right? Like, take the period after the civil war itself. What you saw during Reconstruction was, in effect, a, a kind of second civil war run via insurgency, where the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist groups attempted to terrorize white Republicans and most notably freed slaves into ending the experiment in multiracial democracy in the South. And that worked. Right? It wasn't the only thing that worked. It worked in conjunction with activity by mainstream political actors. But it led to the rise of Jim Crow and the end of democracy in the South. And one, by the way, an authoritarian, a series of authoritarian enclaves in the South that were enforced in part due to paramilitary violence. And in the 1960s and 70s, you had these mass waves of bombings that a lot of people have memory hold. And terrorism then was actually less likely to be deadly on a per-attack basis than terrorism is today. So if you could see an uptick in activity, right, and we get a scenario that's a lot more like Italy's years of leads where right-wing and left-wing groups launched competing attacks and even like targeted high-profile political figures, right, you could have one that seriously destabilizes American politics and really undermines the United States and the foundations of our political system without descending into full-on collapse of political authority. And I think that's something that's worth worrying about. There is some way in which you can say, okay, white conservatives in Southern and Midwestern states who are paranoid about voter fraud and want to enact stricter regulations on the ballot box are inheritors of the impulse that motivated people to end multiracial democracy in the South in, you know, 1875 to 1890 or something. You can make that argument. But once you make that argument, you are essentially conceding that there's really no comparison between what we're describing as revanchist, let's say, sentiment today and revanchist sentiment in 1878, right? Because the goals of the revanchists today are to have, like, voter ID laws and fewer drop boxes for votes that 
might, in the closest possible election, have a 0.0001% impact on turnout in minority communities. That is something that, understandably, liberals would be against, but it's just nothing like the violence of redemption and the desire to make sure that Black people don't vote, right? So, like, if that's the goal of the white revanchists, in what world are they going to take up arms to pursue that goal? You're going to get a series of bombings of drop boxes? Like, what is the actual scenario? Because to me, the things that conservatives and Republicans want in these debates over the ballot box, the franchise, and so on, some of them are counterproductive, some of them are meaningless, some of them are motivated by, you know, essentially partisan bad faith. None of them, as far as I can tell, have a huge effect on voter turnout or elections one way or another. And everybody sort of knows that, right? And and this is, again, where my doubts about sort of inflated rhetoric come in. You have this environment where Republicans talk as if Democrats are behaving the way LBJ did when he stole a House race in Texas. And Democrats talk as if, like, we're facing Jim Crow 2.0. And yeah, if we really were facing Jim Crow 2.0, then you would definitely imagine sort of really high-stakes political brinksmanship leading to violence. But none of that is actually (laughs) happening in the laws that anyone is actually passing, bracketing the issue of Trump and election subversion. Yeah, which you you can't bracket, to be clear. When Biden said that exact Jim Crow 2.0 quote, he said voter suppression and election subversion, right? You can't bracket the question of well, okay, here's the most likely way that someone might overturn an election by getting politically involved in the counting of the votes and the certification process and all the different points of vulnerability in the U.S. electoral system, which there are many, and then say that's just an aside, a separate thing. It's not. It's become increasingly central to the question of how democracy and elections can be undermined in the United States. Well, maybe. You know, in the last election— you had a Republican president issuing a bunch of paranoid statements based on fantasies spun for him for his advisors about foreign election subversion and manufactured ballots and so on. But the closer you got to the actual process, the more you were having Republicans sort of arguing that too many people had, who had moved out of state had cast votes in Atlanta or something, right? which again is an argument about election law that takes place extremely on the margin of actual outcomes and only mattered in this case because the Georgia election was so incredibly close. And again, I I don't see, and, and we will find out, I guess, when they actually occupy election offices, but I don't see a large number of Republicans who are poised to get elected and just stuff the ballot box or just sort of take a bunch of tranches of votes and throw them out. Like, in fact, if that happened under the incredible scrutiny that we now have for all of our elections, the lawsuits would be immediate and court intervention would be swift, right? And and again, just the way I'm talking about this, I think just suggests that we're just operating in a different landscape than the landscapes of these analogies, which is not to say it's a good landscape. It's a polarized, hyperpartisan, paranoid landscape that could contribute to some sort of spasms of protest and violence. 
but it's just not like it's just not like redemption in the late 19th century. There is no large-scale Republican constituency for instituting laws and measures that would actually constitute Jim Crow 2.0. That constituency doesn't exist. Ross finds it hard to imagine Republicans actually overturning a future election the way that Trump tried to in 2020 because they're concerned about Democrats cheating. I'll press him on this point a little later in our discussion. But first, I wanted to ask him about perhaps an even more immediate concern, the ongoing threat posed by violent fringe groups. That's coming up after a short break. I do want to get into the point about election law in a second, but I want, I want to stick with this violence claim first because I think there's an important difference that's worth teasing out, which is it, it is not the case that the mainstream Republican Party wants a return to, I don't know, let's say pre-1965 America in terms of civil rights, but that's what the fringe wants. And that's where the violent actors come from in the United States. The greatest violent threats in the United States right now emerge from white nationalist groups and paramilitary organizations that really do oppose the current political order wholesale and really do oppose the idea of a multiracial democracy. And one thing that comes up again and again in research on countries that have had conflicts is that you only need a very small percentage of people who are actually invested in violence to spark large-scale conflict. And they don't need to be as aligned with the mainstream party as, you know, the fringe factions, violent factions in redemption were, right? It can just be the case that these groups use that as a pretext to launch their own violent campaigns or are motivated by mainstream political activity. So take the example of January 6th. The people who very clearly were plotting more extreme violence than they actually got away with that day, some of the Oath Keeper factions based on the documents that we've seen coming out in lawsuits, right, where they stashed a bunch of weapons in Virginia. Like, these, these people were preparing for serious violence. You have plenty of groups in the United States that are interested in doing that. And the point is that mainstream political controversies, even if it, there's not an explicit, I want you to act in a particular way. When Trump says things like the Proud Boys stand by, I believe is the exact quote, these groups take that as a message. They take these mainstream controversies as symbols that politics are moving in a more extreme direction, and that can motivate them to act more violently in ways that I think like, very clearly could spark larger scale violence than we've seen right now. Like Timothy McVeigh-style bombings of federal buildings are not out of the question. Right, but they're never out of the question. I mean, the Timothy McVeigh bombing of the federal building happened in the midst of the 1990s, which we now remember as sort of, you know, the peak of American self-confidence and political stability, which is— But, but scholars of right-wing militia movements also see that as a peak rise in those kinds of activities that declined somewhat in the 2000s but then sparked again under Obama and has continued— escalating since. The mainstream remembers it as such, but for the militia movement, the 90s was a boom time. And that indicated an underlying propensity towards violence that, well, gave us Timothy McVeigh. Right. But but I guess all I'm saying is that, yes, in any given moment in American history, you could get a Timothy McVeigh figure. 
I think it's harder to launch that kind of plot maybe right now than it was 20 years ago for some of the reasons that we were just discussing a minute ago. But sure, you could have a Timothy McVeigh figure and you can imagine all sorts of scenarios. Although I do think groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, who were the most involved, as far as I can tell, in January 6th, even they don't want to return to Jim Crow. I mean, the Proud Boys like to brag about how multiracial they are and, and all of these things. So, you know, even there, these are guys sort of caught up in a narrative of sort of elite betrayal and elite corruption that is racialized but is not quite the same as the KKK. Anyway, but I think the context in the United States right now makes it more likely than it was 10 or 15 years ago that someone would be inspired to do a sort of McVeigh-style bombing of a federal building. And I think it's true, you know, there's versions of this on the left as well. The Antifa protests in the Pacific Northwest were sort of centered around symbols of federal authority for a reason. The riots in the city of Washington, D.C. that sent Trump to the bunker briefly were concentrated around the White House for a reason. This is not a great time in American life, and you do have more risk of that kind of thing. Um, but again, getting from that, like some more fringe organization sets off a bomb at a polling place. As with January 6th, at a certain point, this would sort of be reabsorbed into partisanship and there would be talk about how, you know, it was a false flag operation and the liberals had blown it out of proportion or something. That might be the case. But it's not like they'll set off the bomb and then the next day, Brian Kemp will say, well, we're going to declare martial law in Georgia and shut down all voting in African-American precincts, right? Like, that's not going to happen. The next step to authoritarianism slash civil war just seems like a really big leap, even from a world where these bombings are more likely. And the other thing is, like, this is a somewhat separate point, but like, there were fewer white nationalist enthusiasms in the America of the first decade of the 21st century, 2000 to 2010. You know, we were also fighting a ruinous war <laughs> in the Middle East that was killing thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands of other people. And the cycles in American history, I guess it's not as simple as to say, well, you want to live in an era where the threat of domestic terrorism is low. Sometimes the threat of domestic terrorism is low because our energies are occupied with huge disasters elsewhere. Yeah, I agree that the war in Iraq was bad. I don't, it was bad. Well, right. I'm not sure what the relevance of the point is. Well, the relevance of the point is that the war in Iraq was the fruit of a political establishment, a Republican Party with some support from centrist Democrats, that in a way modeled the kind of elite consensus in the service of national unity that often gets treated as the alternative to the sort of chaotic, populist, discombobulated era that we're in right now. And I'm just saying that those periods of, you know, national unity and sort of centrist agreement can have their own big problems too. So I, I'm objecting to romanticizing the national moods and situations in which you don't have any danger of populist rabble-rousing shading into political violence. That's all. You did then, right? And it's not like there's a direct trade-off between populist, nationalist, rabble-rousing and terrible elite consensus policies or terrible policies, right? You can have contexts 
and worlds in which there's a consensus that is backed by populist rabble-rousing that gets people really angry. You can have a world in which there is lots of populist rabble-rousing. There is mainstream opposition to that rising political violence, but also really, really bad policies on the federal level, as we saw during the Trump administration, especially during the COVID emergency, right? It's not like there's a trade-off, like when populism happens, the elites all of a sudden implement better policies, right? The question is, is populist rabble-rousing creating, one, a higher risk of large-scale political violence, right? And I think both of us probably agree that that's true, and not just one Timothy McVeigh, but like multiple of them. That's why we're using Italy's years of lead or Ireland's troubles as an analogy, like a repeated pattern of consistent violence. And two, your your point about Antifa, I think, is significant because a lot of people on the left downplay this, but I think conservatives really do take these kinds of groups as being threatening, right? There's a real sense that when these guys get out in the street and fight or riot around a federal building, that that's concerning. And that's especially concerning on the fringe right. They see this as a real threat to political order. So in the hypothetical, there's an attack on a federal building or something like that, or there's another shooting at a Black Lives Matter protest. It's easy to imagine Antifa people responding by treating the Proud Boys, whoever they're clashing with, more harshly more violently, and that producing a backlash. And so like, you do have this component on the left that is likely, or at least raises the possibility, of there being a cycle of mutually escalatory violence. This is the question, right? Which is how likely is that kind of escalatory spiral? And I think that we created these extremely weird conditions with COVID and lockdowns and Donald Trump being president that sort of temporarily suspended a lot of the, you know, normal things that Americans do and created an environment where mass protest became more likely than it had been really in decades. And, you know, a sort of environment of ideological excitement, shall we say, in elite institutions, including the one I work for. And then that there was kind of a feedback loop between that and right-wing paranoia about election theft culminating in January 6th. So I think you can see in 2020 a version of the kind of feedback loops that you're describing. On the other hand, after January 6th, right, there was a lot of talk about how, well, this was going to be this big inspiration for the far right. And you had all of these Republicans who thought Joe Biden was a, you know, not just a illegitimate president, someone who'd literally stolen the election from Trump. And there was a lot of fear that the escalatory spiral was just going to continue. And it was going to be January 6th meets Portland in the summer of 2020 with, you know, sort of anti-Biden terrorism around the country. And none of none of that happened. You know, maybe there were like 400 extra people joined the Oath Keepers or something. But the Proud Boys, I think, started fighting with themselves and feuding. And that's the other pattern that I honestly see in American extremism. I think you saw it after Charlottesville, after the white nationalist march in Charlottesville. When things sort of reach these kind of crests and suddenly people are actually killed, there tends to be a sort of backtracking and walking away. You see this even even in the right-wing narratives that want to, you know, sort of rewrite what happened on January 6th. They're rewriting it to make themselves peaceful, to say, oh, we were tricked. Right, by the FBI, false flag, that kind of thing, right? And after Charlottesville, the white nationalists basically fell apart for a few years and then sort of 
in the crazy environment of 2020 reconstituted to some extent. But I guess I just think that suggests— Wait, 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 hold that. For every escalatory tendency in American life, there's also a tendency to be like, well— you know, man, that was that was a little crazy. Let's not do that again. But but what actually happened after Charlottesville was that the white nationalists as protest movement fell apart. What you see if you go to fringe spaces then is there was a turn towards violence. And we saw that in the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting and the attack at El Paso, a spate of killings by Adam Waffen, which is a fringe right group. What got discredited after Charlottesville was attempting to march in the street and act like a normal political movement. And that led, if you look at the dynamics on the forums, to lots of people getting killed, like the worst act of anti-Semitic and anti-Latino mass violence in American history. So I, I don't see that as a particularly positive example. And to make matters worse, and I think this gets to the, the sort of fundamental disagreement about democracy here, we're creating these conditions, which you describe as sort of free conditions in 2020, but we're creating the conditions again for a contested election in 2024 and 2028 by virtue of the increasing politicization of election administration in the United States. And I agree that mainstream Republicans are casting themselves as, as peaceful victims, right? And even Tucker Carlson and the kind of like January 6th false flag propaganda basically lies, I would say, about what happened that day. But when you create a narrative of illegitimacy surrounding the federal government and the nature of election administration itself, you create the conditions for people to reject the outcome if they don't like it. And some will reject it violently and others by using the force of law. And the wave of efforts to undermine the nonpartisan structures that had traditionally governed our election administration system, I think are truly breathtaking that have happened since 2020. And if there's a real crisis there, you can imagine all sorts of bad outcomes up to and including an actual stolen election. So just to stick with the white nationalist point, again, this goes to this question of what actually gets your country into real civil conflict, right? So what the white nationalists were trying to do at Charlottesville was become a, I wouldn't say a political party, but a sort of mobilized, publicly constituted organization that would attract new members and would sort of engage in politics at the place where protest and violence and normal politics meet. And a world where lots of groups like that on the far right and far left existed would be a really dangerous world, a really dangerous situation for the U.S. So the fact that they sort of fell apart and fragmented and instead you got a wave of lone wolf killings and assassinations, it's not good to have lone wolf, lone wolf violence, but it's a different kind of thing. That's all I'm saying. It's a different kind of thing from the scenarios where you have sort of organized groups opposed to the state trying to launch violence. You need at least that to get to the Irish Troubles or the Years of Lead. You can't just have lone wolves. You need to have at least that. And so having things break apart and have a turn to lone wolf violence is, from the point of view of the stability of the U.S., a better scenario, no matter how terrible these specific crimes are themselves. So that's one point. Okay, what are the breathtaking acts of subversion? Because it seems to me, and you can tell me why I'm wrong about this, but it seems <laughs> sure. to me that basically the United States has, with Donald Trump and what he tried to do in 2020, this sort of weird, like, one neat trick problem, <laughs> right? Where it's like, oh, 
you want to overturn an election. Well, guess what? If it comes down to one state and we can just find one governor who sends a rival slate of electors to Congress, then because of the vagaries of this weird 19th century law, we can get an overturned election. And I think that that is actually something worth worrying about, right? I agree that that's something worth worrying about. But it's something that you could probably fix just by reforming the Electoral Count Act in various ways. And there's sort of complicated questions that I haven't resolved for myself about what the role of the courts is in all of this and how you, you know, sort of ensure a kind of last line of political defense against electoral subversion. Like, do you make it the Supreme Court? What do you actually do? And when I figure out what I think about that, I guess I'll write something about it. But again, if you have this sort of one neat trick scenario where the biggest threat of electoral subversion could be undone by a bipartisan bill that Mitch McConnell might support, then I'm less inclined to say, well, this is a sign that structurally the U.S. is headed towards civil war or authoritarianism. It's more like a weird combine this particular demagogue and this particular flaw in our system and you could get an 1876 or whatever style constitutional crisis. Yeah, that would be bad. But it's different from saying, here are the 17 structural forces that are going to turn the United States into Viktor Orban's Hungary, which is not, as far as I can see, going to happen. So I think that could happen, right? And I think it could happen not in the next few years, but over the course of the medium term, right? We're talking the next 10, 20 years or something like that. It is not crazy to imagine that scenario happening. The U.S. turning into a— Into some version, a not exact carbon copy because— for many reasons, right? The Hungarian political system is the electoral system is nationally controlled, whereas ours is devolved. The controls on on the press in Hungary are not conceivable in the United States, the degree of government hegemony there. But there are lots of different ways. We have a long history of subnational authoritarianism in the United States. And we kind of modeled it actually, especially in the in the Jim Crow South, which were typically remembered as racial apartheid, but also were a case where the Republican Party couldn't win by virtue of the way the law was structured. And there are lots of different reasons to believe that we are moving in that direction, right? So for starters, we have electoral institutions, you know, the big picture ones that enable a set of voters, especially white, rural, conservative Christian voters, who are inclined to believe their status is declining, to have outsized influence over the political system by virtue of the way the Senate and the Electoral College are set up. And to a lesser degree, the House, honestly, because the House privileges people who don't live in cities. To a smaller degree, maybe than assumed, you have a party, one party that's much more willing to engage in gerrymandering and suppression targeting the other party's voter base than the other one. And gerrymandering, we, we can debate how effective voter suppression tactics are. I think I think there's a lot of evidence that voter ID isn't as bad as people think, but there's reason to doubt that that would continue to be true for a long period of time. It's a complicated story, but gerrymandering's not. Right, it is clearly a very effective way of cementing control over state houses. And while Democrats didn't do as badly as many feared, in part due to counter gerrymandering, which I think is deplorable and a mistake on their part, setting that aside. Uh, why? Why is that deplorable? Counter gerrymandering. I think gerrymandering is bad and undemocratic, and I think it's bad when Democrats do it, and it's bad when Republicans do it. It just happens to be that. But if we're facing a near-term, like you know, single-party state a one-party future for the United States. I mean, surely Democrats need to fight back, right? Yeah, but you don't fight back by creating tactics that are likely to produce an escalation, 
in response. That's my view. Anyway, this is contested among people who share my diagnosis of like medium term <laughs> <Right>. risks <laughs> of, of autocracy, right? Because I think Republicans didn't push as hard as they could on gerrymandering in 2020, but 2030 could be different, right? Uh-huh. And then you add to all of that comprehensive efforts at election subversion from top to bottom, or at least to enable it, right? You have a precinct strategy that Steve Bannon has pioneered that's led to Republicans, and really not just ordinary Republicans, but people who deeply believe the Trump lies flooding local election administration positions, right? But what do you think these people are going to do? Do you think that they are going to throw out votes? It depends on what position they're in. Let's say if you are a judge in charge of election supervision at a local level, yeah, I think that's possible. I don't think it's inconceivable that you could get some precinct-level activists challenging a bunch of voters and then a judge who's sympathetic to the Stop the Steal cause saying, oh yeah, that challenge is right. And then you could have state legislative activity where you're seeing a bunch of it, right? Like there's a an interesting new report that came out from the Voting Rights Lab that looks at a number of different states and the authority that those states have legally from the political areas to basically seize control of electoral systems. And do what? What are, what are they going to do when they seize control? Well, I mean, we can run through a billion different hypotheticals, but one is, let's say, uh, a local administrator does throw out ballots on what I take to be flimsy grounds. It's upheld by a local judge. How many ballots does he throw out? Uh, he throw, he's throwing out like 30% of the ballots or like 0.0001%? This is, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the value of speculating like that is, right? It's Well, because you're creating a speculative scenario where literally the United States is turning into an autocracy. You're going from that to a county supervisor is going to disqualify some ballots in ways that, again, so I'm trying to understand the scale. In order to actually make the U.S. an autocracy, you need something more than a county supervisor, you know, rules out an extra 20 votes because the signature match is blurry or something. You, You need, like, an actual shift in the way elections are run that permanently makes it impossible for Democrats to win, which the stuff that a county supervisor could get away with under our current laws, which I assume will remain in force and be adjudicated by a court system that is filled with Republicans who showed very little appetite for the stop the steal stuff, the stuff you could get away with is not autocracy-making stuff. It just is not, right? I don't actually think that's true, in part because you're creating an isolated situation where it's one person acting independently, when what we're seeing is large masses of people on the order of thousands trying to get involved in the system, contesting. I mean, there's— Because it's a democracy, right, where you can run for offices, right? Like, people are allowed to run for office, right? Yeah, and I don't think it's bad to run for office, but I do think it's bad to do so in a nefarious way. That is to say, to use your power in a nefarious way. Right, but these people think— that the existing county supervisors were, like, cheating in some big way. Like, that's what they think. They think they were, like, bussing in fake ballots. And you think that's bullshit, right? So when these people take over, do you think they're going to bus in fake ballots? It just seems to me that what the actual Republicans running for office believe about the system is that the Democrats are cheating, and they need to be in charge so that cheating won't happen. Okay, so then they're in charge. Are they going to cheat on a massive scale? So what they take to be cheating, their understanding of what is cheating, is, first of all, like highly politicized and made up, right? When you listen to someone like Steve Bannon talk, if you've listened to his show at all, 
they take there to be massive evidence of fraud mm-hmm. in a variety of different cases. And often that evidence of fraud is like they come up with some weird, totally made up, ridiculous statistical model that says it's impossible that Democrats could have gotten X votes in this area based on a certain set of conditions, right? So in their view, in the view of somebody who really believes that, you believe that those Democratic ballots are pro tanto illegitimate because they're Democratic ballots that are cast in an area where you believe that should be impossible, right? And so you come up with some pretext, and maybe it's signature matches, maybe it's something else that causes people in a variety of different places to do this over and over and over again to the point where you do end up getting a lot of ballots thrown out. Then you can layer on top of that the fact that there are, taking a state like Wisconsin, you have uh, a Republican legislative majority that has gerrymandered itself into near-permanent control. Right now, you have a Democratic governor, but that won't last forever. And you can imagine, as they've done, pushing the boundaries of anti democratic legislation on the state level. Like you've seen in North Carolina, Republicans just take authority from a Democratic governor who won after they didn't like that a Democrat won it, in addition to extreme gerrymandering. Right. So, in a few American states, you have extreme gerrymandering that right now makes the state legislatures uncompetitive. I agree that that's a problem. I'm just going to say again that that is not a situation that gives you an American autocracy. And let me just offer a different interpretation, which is that the Republican Party currently has a set of structural advantages in the Senate and more recently in the Electoral College. It didn't have those advantages with the political coalitions of just eight years ago, right? Obama had a slight Electoral College advantage. It has these advantages. Those kind of advantages are a very normal feature of American political history. The Democrats in, if you go back and look at Democratic House majorities in the 1950s through the 1970s, they were usually much larger than their actual share of the vote. It was just less of an issue because the country was less evenly divided, so it was harder to get a scenario where the Democrats could have a House majority without winning an outright majority, as the Republicans have had a couple times. So that's sort of the underlying reality That reality, though, is being overstated by Democrats who are convinced that they actually command majority support from the American public, when in fact, they do not. So in 2016, Donald Trump won the presidency with a minority of the popular vote. However, the majority of Americans did not vote for Hillary Clinton in that election. In fact, if you look at the national House popular vote, the majority of Americans voted for Republican candidates. And if you combine that with the fact that the libertarian vote was larger than the Green Party vote, you end up with actually slightly more Americans voted for right-of-center presidential candidates than left-of-center presidential candidates. So the outcome of the 2016 election, which was basically power-sharing between the Trump wing of the Republican Party and Mitch McConnell, actually tracked pretty well with what the American public cast its ballots for in 2016. Then in 2020, Joe Biden could have lost the Electoral College. It's absolutely true. But he didn't. And the Democrats have control of all three branches of government. And basically what we've seen in every midterm election or almost every midterm election going back 20 years is strong swings against the incumbent party. So you have an evenly divided country where the Republicans have this slight advantage based on Senate apportionment and the Electoral College. And that's a big problem for Democrats. It's not 
autocracy. It's a problem that requires Democrats to make some tactical choices that they don't particularly want to make, that they don't think are fair, where they have to move slightly to the right of where the median voter is. And, you know, that's just the reality of the situation. But it's talking about it like it's a world where Democrats are unable to win elections and have these clear majorities and are living under minority rule is just false to the actual distribution of public opinion and what people are actually voting for. But I'm not saying that the existence of the Senate and the Electoral College themselves are what make a future of autocracy more likely, nor am I saying that we are, in fact, in an autocracy, right? Like, you've set up this sort of straw man position that sounds like a like a Daily Coast comments poster rather than the actual argument here. No, you said you, you were the one who used the word autocracy first. I would never use it because it's a terrible word that doesn't actually describe what people are using it to describe, but I've lost that battle. <laughs> sure. Autocracy just means dictatorship or non-competitive elections or something. Sure. So if we can take this popular definition that your objections to are registered, right? <laughs> and I, I'm talking about, you know, competitive authoritarianism, the system I think is pretty well defined in the political science literature to refer to one where elections happen. They matter. And sometimes the opposition even wins them, especially at a local scale, but are not effectively capable of wielding power due to the way in which the incumbent party has set up the system to favor itself and give itself a hammerlock on institutions. I don't think we're there yet. I actually don't think we're like all that close. That we're a lot closer than I kind of would have thought we were given this litany of things that are being done at the state level. How can we be close to that kind of scenario when the Democratic Party controls every branch of government and setting aside, since, you know, the issues that you get into with authoritarian states also have everything to do with control over mass media, control over educational institutions, liberal control over media, education, and related institutions in the United States has grown more powerful over the last 20 years, not less, which is itself a driver of populist backlash. Even the military, the leadership of the military, is more progressive and less right-wing, clearly, than it was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. The scale of progressive power in the United States is simply too vast to make this kind of scenario that you are sketching where changes to electoral rules lock in Republican power for 25 years to make it imaginable. Donald Trump stealing an election is imaginable. Yes, and that, I think, is the kind of thing that could create the conditions, given all of these other factors that we've been talking about, right, for long-term and consistent Republican control, that is to say, a changing of the rules to accommodate Trump's preferences, which you're already seeing in states across the country, right? Like, how many bills attempting to suppress the vote or create political control were introduced last year, and then hundreds of them were passed? There is no evidence that any of these bills actually suppress the vote. Mm, there is some evidence. The evidence is, again, at this, inc I mean, all right. I, I also think that this point about control over other institutions, right, is sort of missing the point. Like, if we want to talk about education, we could talk about the way in which a various different series of bills called critical race theory bans are banning books from schools, are preventing anti-American ideologies from being taught. That's a text of a bill that was just introduced recently, right? There's a wholesale effort to exert social control. Right, but that's just something liberals are against. That's not a crisis of democracy. That's just, like, democracy. Well, no, no. You're the one who brought up education here and said that education, liberal control over education is, is a kind of coup-proofing, right? And my view is that there's a wholesale effort by the Republican Party in a turn against the idea that 
political institutions and educational institutions should be insulated from political control in a certain sense, and especially political ones, right? Like, it's like there are all of these people doing all of these things that create the conditions under which it will be harder and harder for elections to remain fair in the long run. And yes, Democrats control institutions right now, but not so effectively. They couldn't pass a, a fairly minimal voting rights revision that would have done some things but wouldn't have fixed all of these underlying problems. It's sad that the John Lewis voting bill failed. It's sad that the freedom to vote bill failed. In my view, anyway, I think those are very reasonable reforms, but they wouldn't have solved a lot of these problems. And even that, with unified control over government, Democrats couldn't pass because of the filibuster, because there are a series of things set up that make it difficult to change the laws and the direction the institutions are trending towards, given what the Republican Party is today and what the people in it want to do, the degree to which the vast majority of Republican partisans accept that the 2020 election was stolen, that Republican legislators who criticize this are basically drummed out of the party leadership and ostracized, that on the local level, you get the people who voted to certify Biden's election. One guy, Aaron Van Langefeld in Michigan, was forced out of his position because he did that. And he was the critical deciding vote, right? Without him, there could have been an electoral crisis in Michigan. He's gone now. Like that, to me, is all suggestive of a country that's trending towards a serious democratic deficit and in the long run, potentially, unified and consistent Republican control over democratic institutions. Yeah, I mean, I guess my assumption is that if there was a insane scenario where the 2024 election came down to one state and Donald Trump managed to make himself president via the House of Representatives, that what would happen in 2026 is a version of what happened in 2018, where the Democrats had swept back into control of the House of Representatives, because that is what has happened in basically every similar scenario over the last 20 years. And I just don't see a systematic Republican agenda of effective voter suppression, not a bunch of bills mandating voter ID and limiting drop boxes. The Republican bills that have passed basically have partially restored the election status quo that preceded the pandemic, which, whatever else it was, was not a competitive authoritarianism. It just wasn't. So I would like to see a more fleshed-out understanding of how Republicans are going to change. You saw it with the gerrymandering stuff this time around. The Democrats actually seem like they're going to come out doing slightly better, in part because Republicans are just not that ambitious. And in a bunch of states, we're too worried about going for the really strong gerrymander because it would make a few of their seats vulnerable. Like, that doesn't seem like a party that's confident about, you know, its stranglehold on American democracy. It seems like a party operating, as both parties are, in a highly competitive 50-50 polarized environment, which may disappear. But if it disappears, I think it's more likely to be because one of our parties figures out how to actually govern the country than that Steve Bannon succeeds in rigging all of our elections. Some of the disagreement between Ross and me comes down to how we interpret the same events. He sees the Republican restrictions on voting rights as minor concerns within normal bounds of rough-and-tumble politics. I see them as part of a broader anti-democratic agenda, one being enacted by a party that is no longer interested in sharing power with its opponents. But some of our disagreement is about what may or may not happen in the future. 
what needs to happen for one of us to admit that we got it wrong? That's what we discuss after one last quick break. So I guess I don't really think it's a 50-50 setup, but I sort of think this is tangential given that Democrats have won the popular vote in seven out of the eight last presidential elections. But I, I guess we, we only have a few minutes left, so I want to close with a question for both of us, I think a challenge, which is what would it look like to be proven wrong? Because both of us have been talking probabilistically, right? Like a lot of my argument is that we are trending in a direction, but it's not inevitable. And your argument is, well, it doesn't look like Republicans are the kind of party that I think I'm afraid that they are, or it doesn't look like large-scale violence is going to happen. In a certain sense, that sets both of us up for making non-falsifiable predictions, because we can both say, well, there we said there was a probability. So what does being wrong look like? I, I'm actually, I'm trying to think this through on my own, maybe think out loud while we're talking, because I'm not sure what a fair benchmark is, given that it is reasonable to speak probabilistically here. There are slightly separable questions here, right? And this sort of civil war and violence question, for me to be wrong for me to be substantially wrong, would be the emergence of forms of political violence that actually sort of interface with political institutions. So a world where under President Donald Trump in 2026, Gavin Newsom has called out the California National Guard and closed the borders for whatever reason, right? Or, you know, is, is effectively like operating as if California is an independent state. That would prove me wrong. I think things on that magnitude would prove me wrong. I don't think a few extra white nationalist terrorist attacks would prove me wrong. And then on the competitive authoritarianism question, I mean, I think that if you had basically a world where Republicans won control of the House and Senate and the presidency every cycle for how long has... I mean, I, we have some disagreements about Hungary, too. But let's just <laughs> yeah, yeah, take, yeah. <laughs> how long has Orban been in power? Uh, at this point, since 2010. Right. So so let's say 12 years, uh, Republicans never get a majority of the vote, and they, you know, always have unified control of government. That would prove me wrong about the existing and likely future balance of power in the U.S. So I think on my end, what would count as being wrong would be a scenario in which you see, for a similar period of time, say 12 years, little evidence of successful Republican strangling of political competition in a large-scale way. So, you know, voter ID laws continue to do nothing for a long period of time, which is possible, but that's not the only plank, right? Like, there's no election subversion of any kind. Democrats become more competitive again in states like North Carolina and Wisconsin um, at the state level. Right, just a general consistent trend of the things that have looked like they're anti-democratic features, not of the American system, not suppressing competition. And then on the violence side, it's a bit harder because I'm not predicting like that we go into a civil war. And I'm saying that it's likely that under certain conditions you could see a much larger amount of political violence. So maybe it would be something like a collapse in the number of militia movements, not just movements, but like the popularity of these movements and their activities 
would suggest to me, in the next few years anyway, that fears of violence were considerably overstated if they start falling off in the way that they did in the 2000s again. That, to me, would be a benchmark that would suggest I was wrong about this. Yeah, I mean, my my guess, I think we have less, as listeners can tell from the intensity of the conversation, I think we have less disagreement in the violent civil war space than in the competitive authoritarianism yes, space. I, I, I mean, my, right. my expectation is that the current risk of political violence will sort of hold for, you know, five or ten more years at least. Like, I'm not predicting a sudden fade, although I, I was hoping for, you know, a post-COVID economic boom that would sort of create a new era of good feelings, but that seems not to be in the offing at the moment. Yeah, Omicron has not been great. And that's the thing, right? Since we've been talking all about the future, there's so many things that are going to happen that neither you nor I are going to be able to predict. That is the difficulty with the future, yes. It has a way of doing that. Well, thank you for having me, Zach. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I had a, I had a great time with some 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 agreement, some spirit of disagreement, but like on the whole, I feel like I learned a lot. I hope listeners, you all did too. Take care, Ross. This, this has been great. You as well. Take care. This episode is part one of a two-part special asking just how worried we should be about the future of American democracy. It's hosted by me, Zach Beecham. Be sure to catch part two next Thursday when I talk with political scientist Lee Drutman to explore the question, is it time to do away with America's two-party system? Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could make better. If you have any ideas on these topics or for future guests or things to discuss, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review and subscribe. And join us on Monday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations with my friend and yours, Sean Ailing.